you will join me in the Gospel of Luke. We continue in our series through Luke. We find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we will be looking at verses 21 through 24. The title of our sermon is The Joy of Jesus. And our key words are wise, elect, and blessed. Now, one of the great joys of being part of one local church over a lifetime is having the opportunity to see the Lord's work in the lives of His people as they grow and mature and travel through the various stages of life along the long, dusty, narrow road of the Christian life. I I hope that over the last five and a half years as we've gotten to know each other that you've seen that in me, not simply as a pastor, but as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as your friend. And in that journey, all of us have taken hits from one another from time to time. We've been helped. We've been hurt. We've laughed together. We've cried together. We have rejoiced with one another. We have mourned. We have sinned and been rebuked. And we've had great opportunities to rejoice because of the work of God in our lives. And the longer we continue in this journey together, through all the difficulties and through all of the pains and all of the ups and downs, the more we will see with increasing clarity the great blessings of God upon His people. In my time as a pastor, one of my favorite things has been to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ some young, some older, and having the opportunity then to sit back and watch the Lord at work, growing you, shaping you, maturing you, moving you from one level of understanding and faith to another. It's a marvelous work that God does, and I delight in getting to see it. I hope you see the same in me, a young man with rough edges getting smoothed out, learning more and more about what's most important, overlooking more and more of what's less important as I grow and learn and mature with you and see greater clarity in the fullness of God's work throughout history and our place in the story of God here in the 21st century. I hope there's great progression of our helpfulness to one another as we do life together as a church, realizing that sometimes when iron is being sharpened, there's going to be sparks. But those are necessary. You see, the older I get, I have a birthday this week, so I shave to look younger. I'm in that zone. I want people to think I'm a little bit older so they listen to me but I want to look younger because I'm getting old enough now that I want to be younger. So I don't know what to do. But the older I get, the more I am amazed and love what God does within the local church. Taking broken, sinful people and redeeming us and then setting us on course together toward the great celestial city in which we all hope and can see with greater and greater greater clarity as we move closer and closer to that great end with Jesus Christ. This is a supernatural work of God, isn't it? The fact that you and I are here together right now, 
worshiping with one another, singing and praying and listening to the reading of the word and giving our money and hearing the preaching of the Bible with all of these people. If you look around, they're not people we would generally hang out with for any other reason. It's a supernatural work of God. You knew it in your unconverted state and you know it of those in your life who aren't Christians. The things we do as Christians in the church are not appealing to the non-believer. They think it's a waste of time. They think it's a foolish endeavor. They think it is an infringement on their opportunity to maximize their pleasures in this life, in this world. But we are brothers and sisters. We are Christians. We are in Christ. And this time that we gather, this meeting together for worship is not something we do during the week. It is the greatest part of our week. We long for it. We, we delight in it. We want more of it. And once a week, we have this opportunity where God takes us from the depths of the valley and He places us with Him on the mountain of transfiguration that together we can behold His glory. What a marvelous gift it is. But you see, none of this would be possible were it not for God taking us to be His children. As the Apostle Paul says, adopting us into His family. Making us new creations in Christ and revealing to us through the great and glorious truth of the gospel and all the wonderful truths that undergird that gospel. The Apostle Paul writes about us in 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, we are who we are as a church. We are who we are as a people of God. We are who we are as His children, loved, cared for, nurtured, sustained, and worthy of the greatest rejoicing having received the full revelation of God's great truth by the supernatural work of the Father, electing and ordaining, and the Holy Spirit transforming and redeeming, and the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplishing our salvation on the cross. And by the grace of God, we who were broken, we who were battered and messed up in all sorts of ways, have had our names written in heaven forevermore if we are in Christ. And it's that great reality right there that we see our Savior Himself rejoicing in in the text we will look at this morning. It is the fact that we who by the world's standards are nothing special at all have been made alive together with Christ. We have been given eyes to see and ears to hear the great truths of God. And as Jesus prays to the Father and talks to His disciples, we see that the disciples of Jesus Christ are uniquely blessed by the gift of the Father, by His revelation. Over our contemporaries, and even surpassing that of the predecessors of the full revelation of God in the Scriptures, we have a great blessing. We are a blessed people, brothers and sisters. 
And Jesus himself rejoices in that with us. So let's read of our Savior's joy and rejoicing, beginning in verse 21 of Luke chapter 10. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, Luke writes here that Jesus was rejoicing in the Holy Spirit in that hour. So if you recall from last week, Jesus had sent out the 72 disciples into various cities and towns that he was about to enter into. And they all returned with great excitement. And they were telling of all the works that they were able to do, casting out demons, healing the sick and proclaiming the great news of the kingdom of God. Jesus rejoiced with the disciples. But he reminded them that their joy and that their hope was not to be wrapped up in their ministry efforts and successes, but rather to rejoice in the fact that their names were written in heaven. They were to rejoice in the great truth that they were Christians by the grace of God. So now Luke tells us it was that hour, that same hour, that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is a very Trinitarian text. The Holy Spirit in Christ delights in the great work of regeneration, causing Jesus himself to rejoice in the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, who has purposed all of these things according to his will. And as Jesus heard the reports from the disciples, and as he considers all of of the great things that are being done, For the kingdom of God, the Savior's joy rested in the Father's grace that enlightened men and women to see the truth, to hear of the great kingdom, and to see what was yet to come in the work of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon was preaching this text and he said, It pleases Jesus when the gospel has free course and God is glorified thereby. Shall we not find our joy where he finds his? Shall we not enter into the joy of our Lord? Whenever we hear good news of a village evangelized or a township moved by the glad tidings of a country long shut up from the gospel at length, opened to the word, let us feel our highest and deepest joy. Rather, let us rejoice in this than in business prosperity or personal advantage. What if we can find no joy in our own circumstances? What if even spiritual affairs within our soul are full of difficulty? Let us joy and rejoice that God the Father is revealing the light of His gospel among the sons of men. Be this our highest wish. Thy kingdom come. And in that coming kingdom, let us find our utmost happiness. Be sure that the joy which warmed the heart of Christ can do us no hurt. It must be a pure, sacred, and ennobling joy. And therefore, let us indulge in it very largely. Amen. Now notice here how Jesus prays to the Father. Notice the specifics in which he rejoices. Look again at verse 21. 
He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Who are the wise and understanding that the Father has hidden the truths of his kingdom from? Well, surely it was the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. In the Gospel of John, we read that there were those who asked with great skepticism in the days of Jesus, have any of the rulers, any of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, are any of our teachers following this man? Those men were considered wise. Those men were supposed to be the ones who understood the word of God. But they had not taken kindly to the ministry of Jesus, to say the least, had they? So what were the people to think? If this man is who he says he is, certainly someone of substance will be by his side. But the Lord himself cared very little of what they thought, didn't he? He called the Pharisees blind. He called the scribes hypocrites. And so if it was not the teachers of the law who followed Jesus, who was it to be? Who were these men? A few common fishermen, some everyday nobody townspeople, a few women of substance, fewer men of means, some Romans, some Gentiles, the bulk of them poor and unlearned. With a few exceptions, their names were to never be on the big screen or spoken in households around the world. They were common. They were hard-working people who loved and followed Jesus because they recognized the glorious kingdom when it came near to them. People like us, people, people like Gary, people like Josh, people like Andy, people like Gina and Paul and Alan, just like us. And this is the very thing that the Lord rejoiced in with great thankfulness. He was delighted that he was surrounded by people who weren't full of hypocrisy and self-exaltation, but rather a people who had childlike natures and a willingness to humbly say to Jesus, I am yours, and wherever you lead me, that is where I will go. And it seems as though Christians fall all over themselves when some celebrity becomes a Christian or says they're a Christian. Or when they thank Jesus on national television for their touchdowns. And all of a sudden we're paying them thousands of dollars to talk to men's groups or women's groups as though their celebrity status is going to amount to something far greater in the kingdom of God than what God is already accomplishing through the common means of grace that he employs week in and week out in his local churches all throughout the world. Now, should we praise God if some celebrity truly knows Christ and truly understands the gospel and uses their platform to rightly praise God and proclaim the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, of course. But is that God's ordinary means of bringing people into the kingdom? Certainly not. Jesus rejoiced that the Father had revealed His light and His salvation to those who were lowly and humble, who by the world's standards were poor, but were rich in faith, giving glory to God. 
Jesus was most at home among those people. Jesus himself was poor in the world and boasted of no wisdom of his own, even though he was wisdom itself. He was meek, he was lowly in heart, and he rejoiced in a people who were humble to receive his great teaching and eager to tell it to the world. These are people for whom Jesus thanked the Father for choosing as his own. There's a great example here for us to recognize in Jesus' response as well. Notice all around the disciples, there are vast multitudes of people who are walking down the broad road that leads to destruction. They're uncaring. They're unaffected by the gospel of God. They're unaffected by all that the apostles were doing. They are hardened. They are unbelieving. There are only a few who are believing and whose souls have been set free in Christ. But what is Christ's response? Rejoicing. We must praise God that any at all are converted and walking with Christ. That any of us at all believe the gospel. We completely misunderstand and do not recognize the sinfulness of mankind if we do not rejoice that even one of us is a Christian. The conversion of every single soul to Christ is amazing. It's as great and amazing as Lazarus being raised from the dead. So we must learn from Jesus to be more thankful and more amazed, praising God for the new hearts of mankind. If only a few are saved, we should find a great reason to rejoice. If only through free grace and undeserved mercy any are saved at all, we must rejoice. Now, before we move on, please do not mistake what Jesus is saying here to mean that Christ would not have the most highly esteemed, the most notable of men come to him. The most studied, the most learned people in the world to flee to him for refuge. When anyone of genuine heart cries out to God for mercy, confessing that Jesus is Lord and has been raised from the dead, they will be saved. They will not be put to shame. But if the truth is hidden from some and revealed to others, we may be sure that there is a cause for that. And so it is that the greatest joy of Jesus is that those who come to him, whatever their greatness or however little they are known, that they come to him with a childlike spirit, willing to learn, willing to be humbled, willing to be rebuked and to receive by faith all that he has for us. The people of God may be of lowly estate, but the people of God have a supreme belief in wisdom itself. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our teacher, our savior, our brother. And isn't it amazing that he's our friend? Our friend. Jesus continues in verse 22 as he continues to pray, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is teaching those who were hearing him in his prayer here. He's teaching us about his essential nature as the Son of God. First, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Which begs the question, what were all of these things? 
Well, Jesus is speaking of his knowledge to reveal the Father and his authority to grant salvation. Jesus is the Son. He is the heir of the heavenly riches and has been given all that he has from the Father as an inheritance. And wouldn't you know it, God speaks of us as his children, as those who receive the inheritance in Ephesians chapter 1, just like Jesus. Everything that is necessary for Jesus to carry out, other, it was entrusted to Jesus. Now, we certainly recognize that in Jesus' pre-incarnate state, prior to Jesus taking on human flesh and becoming a man, he was equal with the Father in heaven. But Jesus became a man. And in becoming a man, he took on absolute humanity. And so God gave Christ all of the divine power and majesty that was necessary for him to do his ministry that he would fully enter into when he rose from the dead. So Jesus was fully dependent upon the Father. He was fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit in his humanity. And so he needed all that the Father gave to him that he might do what he was commanded to do. Now Jesus goes on to say, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. Jesus is the sole source of revelation because only God knows God. And here we see this as a relationship between Father and Son. To illustrate, no one knows my children as I do. Because I am their father and I'm raising them in my home. Likewise, no one can know me in the way that my children know me because I am their father. For better or for worse. As my children grow older, they will continue to learn me and witness my life in a way that no one else can. And so there will be times when I can fool everyone else around me with a nice smile and flowery words and pastoral affections. But they won't be fooled. Such intimate knowledge like that can only come in a long-term setting together under the same roof with a myriad of circumstances that have taken place over time. And so while my example falls short of the father's relationship to the son, you understand at least what we're driving at here. There is an intimacy among the members of the Trinity that no man will ever know. It is eternal. It is mutual. It is exclusive. Only God truly knows God. And that knowledge makes Him the sovereign soul dispenser of revelation, of truth. So God has determined that the only way we might know the Father is through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus continues in his prayer, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one will know God unless he is revealed to them in God's supernatural power. Man does not come to a knowledge of God on his own. Man is blind and on his own he is utterly foolish. And while the scriptures tell us the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
The Apostle Paul says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so it makes all men who do not worship God without excuse. But being bound by sin, no man on his own has known or honored God or given thanks to God because apart from God revealing himself to us as the Son, we have become futile in our thinking and in our foolish hearts we're darkened. So when left to ourselves, no one understands, no one seeks for God, All have turned aside and together we have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. That doesn't leave anyone out, does it? Friend, if you do not know and trust in Jesus Christ, this is your condition. You have a darkened heart and you do not seek after good. You are not a good person. You can't even know what good is Because only God is good and you do not know Him. Won't you turn your focus upward and beg of God to reveal Himself to you through the power of His Word and the person and work of Jesus Christ? He is calling on you to recognize and to admit and to repent of your sins, to place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only source of life and salvation. In Jesus there is life. Apart from Jesus, only death. Won't you run to Jesus? Won't you cling to Jesus and rest in His never-failing work on behalf of His people in living a law-fulfilling life and dying a sinner's death and being raised from the dead to live at the right hand of the Father forevermore? You are a great sinner. But you see, Jesus is a far greater Savior and reveal to you all that God has given us to know that we might rest and delight in Him alone. And for those of us who are Christians, you see, it shouldn't surprise us that those who do not know Christ cannot see the beauty of the gospel. The Word of God radiates great light every time we open the Word. But it cannot be seen unless a person's eyes are opened by God. The dark scales removed that they might see. They're blind. They're dead. And the truth, brothers and sisters, should cause us to rejoice in the salvation of men and women and children all the more, just like our Savior. That God would choose to reveal Himself to some is absolutely astonishing. That He chose to reveal Himself to you and to me. Do you wake up each day and consider your life and think, Me? God chose to save me. Me. What grace. What love. This is, this is what our understanding of the Bible's teaching on the doctrine of election should do in our hearts. Why are you of God's elect? Why am I of God's people? Why is anyone elect by God? Oh, how humble that should make us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Why me? Why you? It's all to the praise of His glorious grace. The Son has chosen to reveal to us the great majesty of God to the praise of His glorious grace. And so with Jesus we say, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things to us, your little children. And you see, this truth that no one will see who God is unless He reveals Himself to us in the Son shows us that Jesus is everything in salvation. He is the revealer. He is the redeemer. He is the savior. He is the keeper. He is everything now and forevermore. Can anything be lacking in the Son's saving power? No. No, for it's so inexhaustible, His resources that the Father alone knows the Son and we know Him only because He has been supernaturally revealed to us. And so the great heavenly anthem for all eternity should be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus continues on in verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. There are several ways that the Bible regularly talks about someone coming to understand the gospel, believing in Christ for their justification. But one of the more common ways we see God communicating this reality is through the instrumentality of eyes and ears. We've seen this worked out physically in the miraculous healing work of Jesus and the apostles, giving blind eyes sight and giving deaf ears hearing. And these works that Jesus was doing were really a shadow. They were a type of that which was greater, that which was Jesus was going to do in the hearts of those who were being saved. Now we sing about this very thing, don't we? I once was blind, but now I see. Or in another song, Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap ye lame for joy. These are all pictures of the work of God and the redeemed souls of His people. Aren't they beautiful? Jesus thinks so. He thinks it's beautiful. And He tells the disciples, you are blessed that you see what you see. You are blessed to hear what you hear. You are blessed that you are here with me right now, seeing what I am doing, seeing what I am going to do, seeing with what power and authority I am able to carry out these great works, which I am here to do in fulfillment of the great covenant of redemption that was made with the Father in eternity past. That a people would be set free from the bondage of sin and death and made alive together with me forever. There were many 
people in the days of before the apostles, prior to the incarnation of Christ, many people that longed to see the Messiah who would come and fulfill all that was prophesied and spoken of in the law and in the wisdom and in the prophets. Remember back in chapter 9 when we looked at Jesus' transfiguration? Jesus was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And remember we said, even though Moses and Elijah knew Christ in his pre-incarnate existence as the eternal Son of God, they had not yet seen him in his incarnate state as the Messiah. And so Moses and Elijah could have looked at Peter and James and John on that mountain and said, we wondered when he would come. We spoke of him, we prophesied about him, we longed for him, we believed on him, but you, you get to see him. You get to hear from him. And it's all unfolding here right before your eyes. What a marvelous sight. The great men of God before the coming of Christ all longed to see the day of the fulfillment of all that had been spoken of. The fulfillment of all the types and shadows and the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams. The true source of all their hopeful worship and praise and adoration. And here it was. Amazing. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Blessed are you. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Still yet, we have an even far greater inheritance than the disciples had. Because we have the full revelation of God in the Scriptures. We have the full manifestation of the Holy Spirit who not only dwells within us, but has given us an overflowing abundance of power to fulfill all that God has called us to be as His people to the praise of His glorious grace. You see, often we think of the disciples and think what it would be like to be there, and certainly we do wonder. But you know what we have is far greater, far greater. You see, you and I know the whole story. We need not wonder if Jesus is the Messiah. We need not wonder how Jesus was going to bring the kingdom of God to bear among men. We need not wonder in whom we are to believe. We have it all right here in the Scriptures. And it is this Word of God into which the angels long to look. Are you looking where the angels long to look? Are you reading the scriptures to know more of God? To understand more of what God has done and is doing? Revealing Himself to us. This is the only way you know God, brothers and sisters. Through what He has revealed to us. As He illumines the text through the Holy Spirit that we would see and believe more and more of Him. Oh, how blessed we are to have eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that understand. J.C. Ryle commented on this passage and said, the difference between what the prophets and kings saw and what we see is the difference of twilight and noonday, of winter and summer, of the mind of a child and the mind of a full-grown man. Blessed are the eyes that see what we see. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we are so very grateful for the great work of salvation, of redemption, accomplished in Christ Jesus and applied to the lives of your people through the intervening, supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to give us new hearts, new eyes, new ears, new lives. We rejoice with our Savior in the saving work of you, our Trinitarian God. We rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ in bringing about the salvation of his people. And we rejoice as your people to be counted among them. God, would you do a great work in our hearts to amaze us all the more of our great salvation? Would you remind us in our times of despair as well as in our times of boasting and pride? Who am I? Who am I that the creator of the universe would save me who was his enemy who did everything and anything that we could to run from him to scorn him to be at enmity with him who am I who are we God amaze us yet again by the gospel. Father, we know that we don't deserve this. We recognize that it is all to the praise of your glorious grace and it's really all about you and not us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to bind us together, to be amazed together the glorious riches that were given to Jesus Christ and that we inherit as your children. And Lord, I pray that you save other undeserving wretches like us. Others who are blind and cannot see, who are deaf and cannot hear. Others who are dead in their transgressions and sins, would you say to them, come forth and give them new life in Jesus Christ, that the old life would pass away and the new life would come and that they too would be here with us to delight together in the great work of Jesus Christ to give us salvation, to give us life abundantly forever and ever. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you. We can commune with you. We can understand you and we can delight in you. May we do it all to the praise of your glorious grace. For your name's sake. And for our great and eternal joy with the Son. And it's in his wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen.